Welcome to Orphaned Entertainment, the podcast dedicated to public domain and abandoned media. I'm your host, Christopher. Joining me as always, the person who always finds the right words to say to stir up a crowd, it's Lydia. <laughs> yep. Man, I'll tell you what, I'll get those pitchforks and, and torches out faster than anybody <laughs> else you've heard. <laughs> How are you, Christopher? I'm doing very well. How about yourself? Um, you know, I'm doing much better than I was last week. <laughs> <laughs> yes, good. A little peek behind the curtain there. Uh, <laughs> hey, before we go any further, I wanted to mention something. The last movie, The Death Kiss, we talked about as being the first directorial movie of uh, Edwin Marin. And we were saying that we thought some of the problems we had with the film was with the direction. And we thought maybe it was because it was such, you know, a freshman director. (laughs) And we were talking about some of the other films that we were curious to go look ahead and and see some of his other work to see if we thought it kind of, he honed his craft or not. Right. Um, I have not had a chance to really go ahead and everything, but I did (laughs) want to mention that over on... um, Rod Barnett and Troy Gwynn over on the Bloody Pit on their podcast, they're going through and reviewing all the Universal films nice. uh, through the 40s. And they looked at Invisible Agent, which was one of the oh, lists good. of films that Edwin Marin looked at. And they actually thought that the direction was really, really good. good. They did not have any issues with the direction. I just thought I'd bring that up because we were curious. We even talked about the Invisible Agent as being probably one of the sequel not sequel to the invisible man which right. is exactly yeah, I remember what it that. is that's great we'll have to check that out over on their uh, on their podcast they actually ended up really enjoying the film thought it was one of the stronger uh, sequel not sequels ah nice <laughs> of all of the yeah. ones available that says something yes. too i think there are a number of them <laughs> yeah there are and so that's 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 a good sign that maybe mr marion did indeed uh, you know uh, better himself <laughs> yes yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I wanted to mention that before I forgot. So I think now's a good time to uh, first thank everyone for tuning in and make sure that they know that they can listen and subscribe to the show at all your favorite outlets, including Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, Spotify, Amazon Music, Podchaser.com, or the new Cephalopod app. And wherever you choose to listen to your podcast, if you have the option to do so, please rate and review the show. If you are a Facebook user, there's a group that you can join, and this is a great place to find out what we are going to be covering next and an easy place to leave any comments on the films or episodes. If you're not a Facebook user, but you still want to be involved a little bit in the social media, I did start a Discord server for both this podcast and Time Shifters podcast, and so people can go over and join that group over there. I'll have a link in the show notes for you that you can follow. For all us nerds out there that use Discord all the time... (laughs) Oh, nice. Good. <laughs> if you'd like to leave any email or if you'd like to send us an email with any comments, suggestions, or feedback on this or any episode, please type or record a message and send it to orphanedentertainment at gmail.com. All these links are on our webpage at orphanedentertainment.com, or they will be when I remember to add the Discord link. <laughs> as, I'm, as I'm saying that, I realize I have not done that yet. <laughs> Okay, so let's listen to a five-minute mystery and a promo for another podcast. And when we return, we will meet John Doe. Another five-minute mystery.
so Johnny Raymond and his organ bring to a close the first program of his new radio series. This is your announcer, James Van Dorn, saying goodnight to you all. That's better. Now, Mr. Horton, you're the director of this show. Would you tell me in your own words exactly what happened when Van Dorn died? Well, Inspector, it was toward the end of the program. Van Dorn reached for the button to put the studio off the air, and then he, he just gasped and fell to the floor. I see. Where were the rest of you when this happened? Well, Taylor and I were in the control room, and Johnny Raymond was at the organ. Are you Taylor? That's right. I'm the studio engineer. Did you notice anything peculiar during the program? Mm, no, sir. I was in the control room most of the time. Most of the time? Well... Except for the few minutes when I went into the studio to check the equipment just before going on the air. You noticed nothing out of the ordinary? No, sir. How about you, Raymond? Well, I was at the organ singing during the whole show. And you didn't see anything either? No. Mr. Van Dorn just pushed the button and then collapsed. Let's take a look at this button. Yeah. Which one was it, Mr. Raymond? Well, I wouldn't know. Kind of new around here. It's this black one here, Inspector. It puts the studio off the air when you... Oh! Yeah, what's a... What happened, Mr. Horton? Well, I don't know. Something pierced my finger. Pierced your finger? Yeah, let me see. Well, well what do you know about this? What is that? Hey, look here. A little pin sticking out of this button. A little pin? Yes, and that's not all. You see this stain on the lower half of this pin? If my guess is right, this pin's been dipped in poison. Dipped but in what poison. does it mean? It means that Van Dorn didn't just die, but was murdered. Murdered? But how? Simple. When Van Dorn went to switch the studio off the air... He stuck his finger on the pin and died immediately. Incredible. But that means anyone could have slipped in here and put that pin there. Hey, you're wrong there, Mr. Horton. It means that one of you three put that pin there. One of us? Yes, Horton. Who? You, Mr. Taylor. You're under arrest for the murder of James Van Dorn. How did the inspector know it was Taylor who murdered Van Dorn? We'll give you the solution in just a moment. But first... Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction film. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project. What's well, going to take us a long... Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody So join me for The Bloody Pit. And now for the solution. I murdered Van Dorn. Why, you're crazy. Am I? 
You said you went out to check all the equipment. If someone else had put the pin on that button, you would have noticed it. Well, one of the others could... No, Taylor. It couldn't have been Raymond or Horton. Raymond's new in the radio business and knew nothing about the board or anything else about this studio. Remember, this was his first radio show. If it had been Horton, he wouldn't have accidentally stuck his finger on it just now. No, Taylor. You were the only possible one. Now, you better get ready to march. We're going to headquarters. John Doe is a 1941 American comedy drama directed by Frank Capra. It was written by Robert Riskin and stars Gary Cooper and Barbara Stanwyck. This was the only commercial feature film produced by Capra and Riskin's company, the Frank Capra Production Company. The film centers on a newspaper reporter, Ann Mitchell, played by Stanwyck, who is one in a long list of employees being cut from the payroll as the paper, The Bulletin, is streamlined by its new owner. Anne is told to turn in one final column. Infuriated, she uh, prints a letter from a fictional unemployed John Doe, threatening suicide on Christmas Eve and protest in society's ills. The fake letter is published and instantly becomes a sensation. Rival newspaper The Chronicle Editors smells a fraud and publicly says as much. Anne is called in to produce the original letter to settle the matter, which of course she can't. She admits the story was a fake. Her editor, Henry, is ready to publicly apologize when Anne comes up with the idea of milking this for all it's worth. She and Henry hatch a plan to hire a John Doe. Anne and Henry hire John Willoughby, played by Gary Cooper, a former baseball player and tramp in need of money to repair his injured arm to play the role of John Doe. Anne starts to pen a series of articles in Doe's name and portraying him as a hero of the everyman. Before long, the paper circulation grows as well as the popularity of John Doe. Anne and her creation find themselves on a path of fame and glory, but the road is not smooth and the final destination is anything but certain. As you were recapping that, I just had a flashback to the old AMC uh, when they would show a movie on AMC and they'd give you like the rundown beforehand, you know, next up is, and he'd like talk about it just like that. And I was like, oh, I just had this really great sense of nostalgia. I was like, oh man, I miss, a- I miss like AMC from when I was a kid, you know, when it mm, actually yes. was American movie classics and they'd play these kind of movies all the time. That's probably where I first saw this film back when I was a kid. Sure. I'm sure you can, if you move over to uh, TCM, I'm sure you can still find it over there. I I'm sure I, I'm positive. <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah. I, it seems like they, back when I was growing up, we had these, we had TCM, we had AMC, and then, you know, they had the old Nick at Night, and you had all these, these movies that I, I'm totally rabbit trailing here, but you had all <laughs> these resources for these great classic sources, these great films and, and TV shows. And, it seems really hard to find them now unless you're, you know, really yeah, looking I, I, for them like we do. Yeah, not to continue down the rabbit hole a little bit, but you're, I think you're right a little bit where you could always count on AMC or TCM or whatever. And 
now it is, I mean, they're all almost all available through some streaming service, mm-hmm. but you have to know what you're looking for mm-hmm. ahead of time. There yeah. is very seldom kind of like coming up next or, oh, let me look yeah. in the, let me look in the, uh, in the TV, TV guide, guide or something yeah. and, and see what's coming up this yeah. weekend. You don't have that. So and you need to know about the movie to go search for it on mm-hmm. Netflix or Prime or Hulu. Exactly. Yeah. You don't have the opportunity to just switch to a channel that you know is going to be playing something from, you know, the 30s, 40s, 50s, and you're going right. to get some shot of classic films. So, oh, I miss that. Uh, you yeah. know, I never thought I would say I miss TV. I miss, you know, old fashioned TV. <laughs> but bizarrely, in this instance, I really do. And, yeah, and I think they times. didn't play commercials between in those movies either. They, they wouldn't break them off to do a commercial and then come back to it, which, gosh, back in that day, that was a real treat. Right. From a woman who hates commercials <laughs> rabidly. Uh, yes. So back back to this particular gem, though. <laughs> yes. Meet John Doe is considered by some as Capra's most controversial movie. The film was released shortly before America became inv- involved in World War II, and citizens were still in an isolationist mood. According to some historians, the film was made to convey a deliberate reaffirmment. Reaffirm- ah. The film was made to convey a deliberate reaffirmation of American values. Film author Richard Glazer speculates that the film may have been autobiographical, reflecting Capra's own uncertainties. Glazer describes how John's accidental transformation from drifter to national figure parallels Capra's own early drifting experience and subsequent involvement in movie making. Frank Capra came up with and shot four different endings for the film uh, that he could not choose between. Uh, We won't get into details here so as to not give away any serious spoilers on those endings. He sent the film out to multiple locations, each with a different ending, to see which landed best with audiences. Some were deemed too depressing, others just weren't believable. It was from a comment from one of the test audience members that gave him the idea for the fifth and final ending. All the prints were hastily returned to the studio to have all the endings replaced before going into official release. Another bit of trivia. It was thought for many years that the original film ran for 132 minutes. Film historians believe that nine minutes were cut at some point and lost. Mm. This derived from an early publicity print error where the printer transposed the last two numbers of the runtime. An original <laughs> fine grain master was later uncovered, which ran the actual and correct 123 minutes. Interesting. I, Cause I do believe if you go to like, even on like IMDB, it states it's 132 minutes. Well, what I'm looking to this at day. right now says two hours and two minutes. But that is really interesting. It'd be very interesting to start digging and see where you could find it misprinted. Mm. I, I, I know somewhere in my, during my research, I was looking and I saw it listed and I saw it even to this day still listed for 132. That is really so, interesting. Yeah. All right. A little bit about the actors. Barbara Stanwyck, born Ruby Catherine Stevens, was an actress, model, and dancer, a stage, film, and television star. A favorite of directors, including Cecil B. DeMille, Fritz Lang, and Frank Capra, she made 85 films in 38 years before turning to television. Stanwyck made her debut on stage in the chorus as a Siegfried girl at the age of 16 in 1923, and within a few years was acting in plays. She began acting in talking pictures, receiving her major break when Frank Capra chose her for the romantic drama Ladies of Leisure in 1930. 
1937, she had the title role in Stella Dallas and received her first of four Academy Award nominations for Best Actress. In 1941, she starred in two successful screwball comedies, Ball of Fire with Gary Cooper, which also got her her second Academy Award nomination, <laughs> and The Lady Eve with Henry Fonda. Oh. Ah, just, ah, we all know my opinion on this movie. I'm still going to say it again. The best movie ever made, probably. I had a pause right there. Pause for (laughs) Lydia's (laughs) Pause for Lydia's reaction to the Lady Eve. (laughs) The patented Lydia gush. Oh, just, if you haven't watched that movie yet, oh, you've got to watch that movie. It's just the classic romantic comedy. The original, the best, not the original, but the best by far. The Lady Eve has come to be regarded as a comedic <laughs> classic with Stanwyck's performance called one of the best in American comedy. Oh, it's so great. <laughs> in 1944, Stanwyck had become the highest paid woman in the United States. Despite turning out amazing performances and getting nominated repeatedly, Stanwyck only finally received an honorary Oscar in 1982. Wow. She was also the recipient of the Golden Globe Cecil B. DeMille Award in 1986 as well as several other honorary Lifetime Awards. Stanwyck did win several Primetime Emmys for her work in The Big Valley and for the miniseries The The Thorn Birds, which also got her a Golden Globe Award for Supporting Actress. She was ranked as the 11th greatest female star of classic American cinema by the American Film Institute. Who was number one? Yeah, who was one through ten? I didn't know. (laughs) I I didn't look. That would be... Boy, I'd have that. I'm gonna have to look that up because that's got to be quite the mantle to put oh. on somebody. Yeah, I'm assuming it's no one surviving. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, well, and, and it is classic cinema, classic right. American cinema. So that makes it a little, it narrows it down a little bit. I'm very curious to know though if it's not Barbara Stanwyck or um, Catherine Hepburn or Lauren Bacall maybe or Betty Davis maybe. <laughs> <laughs> How about if I just come up with the list right now? <laughs> right. I'm curious, but though, to you've, know. You've definitely probably filled out the top ten somehow there. <laughs> yeah. in some order. Gary Cooper, born Frank James Cooper, was an American actor who got his start as a film extra and stunt writer. His career would span nearly 40 years and garner him two Academy Awards for Best Actor, as well as three other nominations. He was one of the top 10 film personalities for 23 consecutive years and one of the top money-making stars for 18 years. The American Film Institute ranked Cooper number 11 on the list of 25 greatest male stars of classic Hollywood cinema. So he, Who was he number and, uh, one? <laughs> yeah, he and Stanwyck uh, matched their position on the charts. <laughs> that is really interesting. While he found some success in the silent films, it was one of the early talkies, The Virginian, in 1929, directed by Victor Fleming and co-starred Mary Bryant and Walter Houston that truly made him a star. The Virginian was one of the first sound films to define the Western code of honor and helped establish many of the conventions of the Western movie genre. Looking to capitalize on Cooper's popularity, Paramount cast him in several Westerns and wartime films, including Only the Brave, The Texan, Seven Days Leave, A Man from Wyoming, and The Spoilers, all released in 1930. Yeah, he was a busy man. Very busy. My goodness. Interestingly, he only released three movies in 1929, but we know why. He was making all those movies for 1930. (laughs) 
In the 1930s, a hit song, Putting on the Ritz, written by Irving Berlin and sung by Harry Richmond in the film of the same name, Cooper is referenced in the line, Dress up like a million-dollar trooper, trying hard to look like Gary Cooper. Super duper. My husband told me the other day he can't hear Gary Cooper's name without thinking of young Frankenstein. And I said, why? (laughs) 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 So even today. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, more than two decades after Cooper's death, a new version of the song was released in 1983 by Taco, and the original lyrics were kept, including the reference to Cooper. And yes, it does indeed show up in <laughs> Young Frankenstein as the song and dance number by the monster, Dr. Frankenstein. Oh. <laughs> Super duper! Super duper! <laughs> <laughs> oh. uh, Again, these are two actors that have an amazing film uh, career under their belts. And so I am only giving you the the very basics. One information on them, you know, they are definitely ones to uh, seek out. I was very surprised to see Stanwyck, you know, nominated so many times and never given an Oscar. I'm really that interested That blows in that. my mind. I, it makes me incredibly curious. I mean, to the point, I think I'm going to have to look it up who won the year that the lady eve was released because Mm. holy cow her performance in that i mean you know it's even referenced you know in movies later on people talk about how amazing she was in that so i i can't imagine whose performance was better than that movie that year you want to uh, jump right into the film and start talking about the actors we can start with stanwick and that's one of the things that i i found immediately i found her very comfortable and natural in her role in her delivery. Mm-hmm. Uh, she does has just have this natural way about her that you never get the impression that she's acting. No, you feel like she's never read a script. She's mm-hmm. just walking in and responding the way that she would to anything. And I love her strength of character as this character or, her, or the strength of her personality as this character. I, oh yeah. From the minute she, that she ca- says that the, the one we hire you lunkhead, you're like, Oh, I love this woman. <laughs> She's, she knows everything that's going on. She's got a handle on it. And I, I but I love her directness even from the very beginning. You know, she's right. not she's not a tragic character. I love that about her. No, I I love the fact that, you know, she's been working for this paper for X amount of years. We don't really know. She is a columnist of some kind and she gets fired and she does not take it lying down. You're a couple of stick shine or column man. Big rich slob like D.B. Norton buys a paper and 40 heads are chopped off. Did you get it too? Yeah. You too? Oh, Joe. Oh, I'm sorry, darling. Why don't we tear the building down? Before you do, Ann, perhaps you'd better finish this column. Yeah, lavender and old lace. Wait, Joe. Wait. Wants fireworks, huh? Okay. Here. Below is a letter which reached my desk this morning. It's a commentary on what we laughingly call a civilized world. Dear Miss Mitchell, four years ago I was fired out of my job. Since then I haven't been able to get another one. 
At first, I was sore at the state administration because it's on account of the slimy politics here. We have all this unemployment. But in looking around, it seems the whole world's going to pot. So in protest, I'm going to commit suicide by jumping off the city hall roof. Signed, a disgusted American citizen, John Doe. Editor's note, if you ask this column, the wrong people are jumping off the roofs. Hey, and this is the old fake roo, isn't it? Never mind that, Joe. Go ahead. <laughs> she has so many great parting shots. In this scene, she has three or four really great parting shots <laughs> in, on different levels. But this this movie, I, I couldn't give you a list of Frank Capra's movies off the top of my head, but this is such a stark contrast to our last film. The direction in this yeah. is genius. The, the very beginning of it, there's not a word said for two, three, five minutes. And, you know, the way that they show you that a lot of people are being laid off isn't by saying you're laid off and you're laid off or handing out, you know, checks or anything like that. A guy walks out of the office, he whistles and points at somebody and gives them the chopped head sign. And he mm -hmm. whistles at another guy, whistles, a little, you know, and you see the react. I love that you see the reactions of the people as they figure out, oh, I'm being laid off. Right. It, it's Duh. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to overgush, so I'm going to try not to. And if you've ever been in a any kind of corporation or shop where something like that has happened, now maybe someone doesn't come out of the office and whistle and do the you know the the no, slice or whatever. But you can feel that you 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 get the vibe in the room the tension mm -hmm. the tension and the vibe that you you just you just know bad things are happening and that mm -hmm. is conveyed so fantastically mm -hmm. in this and i mean never you truly feel it without actually yeah you don't have to there there's no one reading a memo about oh well you know we need to cut this and we need no no none of that is really conveyed it's just you can just tell just by what's happening Things have come down from on high, and these guys are getting the boot. <laughs> the first thing, I think the first thing anybody says is she says, you know, look, Mr. I can't think of his last name. <laughs> look, Mr. Connell, I, can't, I just can't lose this job. I have a mother and two kid sisters to support, something to that effect. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they don't start off with them standing in an office and her pleading. They start off, you know, building this situation. Or I should say Capra starts off building this situation, but he does it in in a way that everybody can recognize. You know, the, t the sign on the building's being changed. The name mm. on the door is being replaced. You know, people are being, <laughs> you know, thumbed out the door. And uh, it uh, they could have started with an awkward office scene, but he sets the stage so well. With, you know, I know we're supposed to be talking about about Anne, about Barbara Stanwyck's character, but I think you have to start with the movie. The movie itself is there. It's it's remarkable how many scenes in this movie have no dialogue, mm -hmm. and then so many scenes in this movie have extremely long stretches of dialogue. It's yes, bizarrely, it, it feels like it should be a an awkward pacing, but it actually is perfectly paced because of that balance. Yeah, you you never at any point really feel like um, like annoyed at one or the other. Yes, you're you're fine for those moments that don't have any dialogue because there's activity going on on the screen. There's mm -hmm. not any static moments at all. No. And then honestly, 
when the people are most static is when they're talking. Yeah. Because they've got something to say. But what they're saying just pulls you in mm-hmm. that it's like keep talking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there's no there's no superfluous dialogue in this. I can't mm-hmm. think of anything I can't think of any dialogue or any scenes in this movie. Anyway, sorry, we're we're jumping way ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think though maybe we described Anne Mitchell really well. Just she's she's determined and she's smart. And at no point yeah. do you think that Stanwyck is acting. She just never comes across that way. I love and I, we're going to get to Gary Cooper in just a minute here. But I like that they both feel that way, but their energies are so different. She's hard driving and energetic and on top of things, and he's just extremely reticent. He's very yeah, very. Very laid back. And Take it as it comes. Yep. He, his life, he's he's. You, you get the feeling that he's honestly not unhappy about living the life of this traveling tramp <laughs> of a hobo. <laughs> this and hobo, not, and it's not where he hangs out with the colonel and lives yeah. under a bridge. He's he's fine with that. He doesn't get this job. Eh, that's cool. Whatever. Yeah. I'm. I'll be at the park. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not that he's stupid. It's not that he's an idiot. No. He just. It, it, he's not trying to force things mm-hmm. uh, or, or in, I mean, you know, we find out pretty quickly that he has an injury to his arm that stopped him being able to play as a pitcher. And right. it seems like he's already been, he's already been stomped down in life and not because mm-hmm. people are evil, but he just through an unfortunate event, lost his livelihood. And right. instead of, it's inter- it's an interesting. I hadn't thought of this before, but in he's sort of instead of fighting to regain that the way that Anne is, he he is just taking it lying down. He's seen these things happen to life in life. He understands people get trampled, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. So he's just gonna go be a hobo. I I think you're finding them at two different times of their lives where he's kind of already gone through all the stages mm-hmm. you know if you, if you look at it like the stages of grief or something like that yeah. he's already gone through all the stages and now he's just resigned okay this is this is the hand i've been dealt mm-hmm. you know acceptance change it. yep yeah he's in the acceptance and she's at the i'm gonna fight like hell yeah denial <laughs> you know? no oh no yeah she's in denial uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. bargaining for sure I, I think she goes through the first three stages in about 30 seconds there <laughs> exactly so yes yeah, so they're, they're both at very different places in their lives mm-hmm. but it, it is interesting and yet they're they're thrown together in this same situation i have to admit and i think i mentioned this to you off off recording this is probably the first film that i know I've seen Gary Cooper in. Interesting. Really? Yeah. I, maybe I've seen some other films in, the, in my past, and I just don't realize that I saw that it, that it was Gary Cooper. So this is the first time I'm, I've actually actively sat down to watch a Gary P- Cooper film. Well, uh, his first, oh gosh, 20, 30 movies are basically uncredited. Um, yeah. And this is not an early movie for him. Um, gosh, I'm trying to think. I'm, I'm, I think the Texan is probably the first one I heard of with him in it. Not one of my favorites. Um, he was in a farewell to arms, but I don't remember him in that. I remember him in Bojest, which is probably the most tragic movie ever. Uh, like the most, it, it's, it's four feathers 
before Four Feathers and better. <laughs> and and then uh, one of my favorite movies, and it just happens to just take all the boxes for me, Unconquered, which is uh, a revolutionary war era movie. I don't think it's PC in any way. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a spaghetti Eastern. It's, uh, it all takes place, you know, around Philadelphia, but there are definitely some Italian Indians in it. Um, but it's <laughs> just, it's, it's the last of the Mohicans without uh, anybody you like dying. <laughs> I'm making the worst analogies for this movie. <laughs> I'm totally turning people off to it. That's not my intention. I just love this movie. So it's interesting. I think somehow I grew up with Gary Cooper. And, and this movie must have been one of the first I saw him in, but certainly not, you know, obviously I've been, I've been familiar with him for a while and, and he's iconic. He's just iconic. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, I, I I'm going to say there's probably a better chance of me probably have seen him in some of his uncredited Westerns <laughs> it's uh, possible. because those are the type of films that were on uh, our local UHF station on the afternoons. Oh yeah. Uh, Dick Turpin <laughs> and uh, well, gosh, he was in 1925 Ben Hur, which is hilarious. <laughs> uh, don't remember that one at all. Yeah. <laughs> He was in It, but not the one you're thinking of. This was 1927. No clowns involved. But <laughs> <laughs> but he but he, it's interesting. We watched a movie with him, and I'm gonna um, here we go. I'm sorry, I'm tangenting again. Uh, we watched a movie with him with him in it the other night called The Lady and the Cowboy, and it just happened hmm. to be on Prime or something like that. And he and I, it was bizarre to me because I couldn't think of a time before that I had seen him as a cowboy, and that's how he got his start. He and John Wayne yeah. and all these guys all kind of came up in that realm together. But he moved on, and I I think after that he did a lot of things like this, where he has mm-hmm. this more. Um, I think Jimmy Stewart is probably the closest comparison I can make. He has this kind of. Um, earnestness to him you know he doesn't have the flash in the in the bang he's he's a little like Harrison Ford because he's always kind of himself but he also he's just this real grounded guy that his characters you always feel like they're gonna they're gonna do what it takes to get it done but they're always always gonna be like like moral about it it's kind of hard to right. explain. They're just—he just seems like a good guy. And he was perfect for this role. They wanted mm. someone to represent the everyman, mm-hmm. and he pulls that off in this. He does not come across as like Flash. the eleventh most popular right. uh, actor <laughs> he uh, in an American film yeah. or anything. He's not Cary Grant. He doesn't walk. He doesn't walk into a room and command attention. Which right. I, I love the little bit when they're checking him out and trying to decide if he's the one they want to pick. And it does a little shot of the back of his pants and there's a rip and he reaches back to cover up his shorts underneath. <laughs> <laughs> Did you write that letter to Miss Mitchell? No, I didn't. What are you doing up here then? Well, the paper says there were some jobs around loose. Thought there might be one left over. Had any schooling? Yeah, a little. What do you do when you work? I used to pitch. Baseball? Yeah. So my wing went bad. Where'd you play? Bush leagues, mostly. How about family? Got any family? No. 
Oh, just traveling through, huh? Yeah. Me and a friend of mine. He's outside. Looks all right. Oh, it's perfect. A baseball player. What could be more American? I wish he had a family, though. Be less complicated without a family. Look at that face. It's wonderful. They'll believe him. Come on. What's your name? Willoughby. John Willoughby. Long John Willoughby, they called me in baseball. Uh, would you, uh, would you like to make some money? Yeah. Maybe. Would you be willing to say you wrote that letter and stick by it? get the idea. Yeah. Maybe. That's our man. He's made to order. No, no, no. He don't seem like the kind of a guy that would fall in line. When you're desperate for money, you do a lot of things, Mr. Cannell. He's our man, I tell you. You mentioned earlier that Stanwick in this, it, it's she's just so natural. And mm -hmm. it's interesting because he's the same way. Uh, he, he, but he's so natural in such a different energy that he's almost like you said he's such a normal he seems like such a normal person yeah which is hilarious because it's gary cooper <laughs> <laughs> he's not a normal person <laughs> right well and that's just you know i guess you got to give the credit for to, to the actor you know mm -hmm. he's actually someone that can act i mean this is in a time when we actually had film stars that were actors mm -hmm. versus someone like i mean people like uh, like the put uh george clooney mm -hmm. is like a modern day you know of this kind of and I, I don't i don't see that because i feel like he's always kind of george clooney right he's he's always sort of himself i feel that way about harrison ford like you hire yeah. harrison ford because you want harrison ford you don't hire mm -hmm. him because he's joseph gordon levitt and you're gonna forget that he was in third rock you know <laughs> you you hire him because you want harrison ford in that movie you know and mm -hmm. and gary cooper i think actually was like that but it he doesn't but he doesn't feel like in this role, he feels very safe, self-effacing. And it, to be fair, he maybe have, was like that in real life, too. I'm not sure. <laughs> I haven't seen yeah. a lot of interviews with him lately. so. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> or then. and Yeah, you never really get an idea of actors from this time, what they were really like mm -hmm. away from the camera. Because most of the interviews were set up by the studios. Oh, yes. And very carefully written and carefully yes. directed. Yeah. Yeah. There was, there was no, like, you didn't see them going on uh, Johnny Carson. or Not until much, maybe a few of them, maybe much later much in their lives later. when yeah. uh, when their careers were effectively behind them as far as mm -hmm. this kind of stuff goes. Well, and, and the studios had management of their, of their reputation, the yeah, studio exactly. What owned their reputation? That's how you mm -hmm. ended up with. They uh, they owned the actors. Well, they the, truly were. Yeah, that's owned how you ended up studios. with Rock Hudson married to his secretary, and, and you know these these people who their private lives were very risque, but you never saw that in public. Maybe there were whispers about it, but. Mm -hmm. You just you never really get to see, and like you say, I think until the '60s and the '70s, even when they would have, you know, oh, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna go see so and so's home life, you know, and it shows her in this perfect dress with this perfect apron and these perfect children, you know, and everything. She's pulling a pie out of the oven, and it was right. all so carefully directed. You mentioned Rock Hudson. Think how long the studio 
protected the uh, the knowledge that Rock Hudson was gay. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't Tony until Curtis, like what, all the, these people, the eighties maybe it, it, before yeah, it yeah. came out that Rock Hudson was gay. Before they acknowledged it, absolutely. Yeah. And well, yeah, history, yeah. Certainly but. amongst his his friends and uh, you know within the industry, people mm-hmm. it knew. Was well known, absolutely. Yeah. So it's but publicly, yeah. Yeah. So it'd be interesting to find. I mean, and these are things that I think if you read their biographies, you can get a sense of it. You know, obviously pulled from people that know them well or, you know, firsthand, secondhand accounts. But it, it is a little bit of a tragedy that you can't go back and watch a candid interview. I mean, not many, if any, candid interviews with Gary Cooper from this era. Certainly, right. I, I would be shocked if anybody had any available. I'd be ravenously interested in watching them, though. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think the best you can get is maybe uh, you could you could get a sort of biography uh, people that knew him, people that worked with him, and mm-hmm. they could share personal stories, mm-hmm. but you very rarely actually be able to get anything truly from the horse's mouth. Right, right. So we talked a little bit about Gary Cooper. We talked a little bit about Barbara Stanwyck. We got to talk a little bit about Walter Brennan as the colonel. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love Walter Brennan in this. Give me that again, will you? Who's going to get him? The Helots. Who are they? Listen, Sucky, you ever been broke? Sure, mostly often. All right, you're walking along. Not a nickel in your jeans, you're free as the wind. Nobody bothers you. Hundreds of people pass you by in every line of business. Shoes, hats, automobiles, radios, furniture, everything. And they're all nice, lovable people. And they let you alone. Well, is that right? Then you get a hold of some dough and what happens? All those nice, sweet, lovable people become helots. A lot of heels. They begin creeping up on you, trying to sell you something. They get long claws, and they get a stranglehold on you. And you squirm, and you duck, and you holler, and you try to push them away, but you haven't got a chance. They got you. First thing you know, you own things. A car, for instance. Now your whole life is messed up with a lot more stuff. You get license fees, and number plates, and gas, and oil, and taxes, and insurance, and identification cards, and letters, and bills, and flat tires, and dents, and traffic tickets, and motorcycle cops, and courtrooms, and lawyers, and fines, and a million and one other things. And what happens? You're not the free and happy guy you used to be. You got to have money to pay for all those things. So you go after what the other fellas got. And they are. You're a helot yourself. He's so good. <laughs> so helots. much fun. He <laughs> you a bunch of helots. <laughs> the helots. I love it. And I love the way. And you're turning into a helot, too. <laughs> he could have really stolen this movie. I think they had to purposely, like, okay, we don't have to, we can't give him too much screen time because no one's going to pay attention to the right. other character. <laughs> It'll get real silly real fast or real, mm-hmm. real, uh, sideways real fast i truly enjoyed him i i liked his his attitude the way he i mean he truly was he was living the life he wanted to live Mm -hmm. because he was beholden to no man (laughs) you know he had no bills no one told him what to wear where to go you know how to eat he was truly living his life the way he wanted and you're, you're you're sitting there you're listening to him describe his life and you see his life and a part of you kind of goes I'm a little jealous. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's easy to see how Willoughby ends up with him. Because especially even later on, um, the colonel, you know, says, oh, you know, I've been trying to get you out to go out to, you know, this area for years. And first it was your glass arm. And then it was 
something else and now it's this and and you get this idea that as a as a disappointed baseball player he ran into the colonel somehow and the colonel was like oh you don't need any of that you know and he had this alluring life that he he sold to willoughby Mm -hmm. You know, you yeah, you don't you don't need to ha- you don't need to play baseball. You can just come out and be happy without any of that. And in a, in the position of having lost everything, that would be extremely alluring. So it's interesting. It's easy to see how they ended up together. Of course, we get the story of them both playing doodads, but I think it's <laughs> it's more than that where Willoughby is concerned. It's also yes a promise of a life without regret. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, like I said, I mean, the colonel almost had me sold. <laughs> I was ready to, you know, get a knapsack and uh, <laughs> that's it does sound appealing. <laughs> I know a couple of nice bridges. Crap. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really, all the um, what you want to call them minor characters in this film are all fantastic. I mean, this is probably one of the best cast movies that I've seen mm-hmm. in a while. Uh, there's not a single like dud that I can think of. Mm-mm. No, there's not even even the the small characters, uh, small the smaller parts. Um, there's, I think, uh, oh, who? What's the guy's name? The, early on, she says we could hire anybody to do, to do it, and she calls him. I think she calls him Beanie. Beanie, yes. She says even Beanie could do it. And he says, yeah, I could. No, wait a minute, I don't want to drop off a building. <laughs> but it, you know, if if they made if they tried to make him a major character, it would have been a massive dud. But sure, he even he and the couple of other guys that are supposed to be, you know, the the security, the bodyguards for John while he's staying in the hotel, you know, no nobody is overly silly. Mm-hmm. And nobody is overly dramatic. <laughs> they, they, and I think that they probably were extremely careful t- to balance the amount of screen time that any kind of silly character got. I think. Oh no, absolutely. And I think this goes to like Frank Capra's. You know, yes. As a director, you have to. He he had to know. Okay, we we've got to dial this back because yeah, this could turn into a farce really quick. Yes, and they it's the message of this movie is extremely clear. There's a very obvious, it's, it's interesting. There's an extremely obvious agenda to this movie, but it is, it is provided as a plot that is tenuous. That's that's in danger. It's provided Mm -hmm. as a, 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 something that somebody puts together to, it's I, I'm failing utterly to explain what I'm trying to say. I, there, this is a, a story with a moral in it, and it is yeah. an extremely loud moral. They are not, they're not pulling their punches. They're not trying to leave anything for you to work out on your own. But it also isn't preachy. Any other, right. it feels like any other movie like this. If they ha- if they put this much wallop into saying, you know, be you know, love your neighbor as yourself and talk to your neighbor and care for the person around you. And, you know, every person has value. If they just shouted that like this in any other movie, it would feel like you were being force fed. Mm-hmm. But I, but through this entire movie, there is an undercurrent of intrigue. And so you're not really sure if this message is going to succeed. It's, it's kind of mind blowing. <laughs> like, you can't directly argue against the, the, the moral of this story, but right. they oh. make you nervous for it. Mm-hmm. 
I was amazed how this story is just as relevant today mm. as it was in 1941. And in fact, I'm actually shocked at how, <laughs> frankly, how <laughs> how little we've come, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> or we've gone in a, gone in a big circle. Perhaps I, I, I'm not sure because what happens in this film is very much kind of like it's really something that uh, a lot of us need to kind of like look at today. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it just it blew me away. It's like wow. We truly have not learned a thing no. in 70, 80 years. I mean, yeah. it's just, well, it's and disturbing. And it's phenomenal. You said earlier that this movie was made at a time when people were uh, very, what was the word you used? Isolation, um, isolationist? Isolationist. And the climate during this time period was isolationist because America didn't want to get involved in a world war. Mm-hmm. But... It, it was interesting because as much as we think of it being small town Mayberry and everybody knew their neighbors, the stories that people tell in this movie are directly against it. it they're just mm-hmm. the exact opposite. They're just so much like right now. You know, we've just come out of a year of people literally, we don't even see strangers' faces anymore. And right. so everybody has, it, it's. It's it's shocking that what they're saying in this movie applies, I think, even more this year than it did last year. Mm-hmm. Last year at this time, if we'd watched this movie, I think we would have said, wow, that was a really good movie. It was real feel good. And, you know, there's a lot of heart in it. But this year watching this movie, it's like, wow, if you could show this in theaters tomorrow and people would be thinking about it and talking about it. And there's also the aspect of how the media can control your emotions. Yeah. And I'm, again, that was another element in this film from 1941. And like, it happens today. Mm-hmm. And it, it's been happening since media has been around. Mm-hmm. They can manipulate and decide who you're going to like and who you're not going to like. If you allow, yeah, absolutely. It's shocking. And I guess it's... <laughs> I think there's people that could watch this film and say, wow, that, that that's really something. But nothing like that could ever happen today. <laughs> Let, let's tune in and see what uh, and pick whatever uh, political pundit you want show <laughs> on either absolutely. side of the aisle, to be fair, yeah. and see what see see what they have to say mm-hmm. and not realize that they're being controlled. And in mm-hmm. this film, it's, it's laid bare that it that's is. exactly what happens. Mm-hmm. It is. It's, I, I like that, that even with doing that, even with showing how people can be so easily swayed, they don't vilify the average Joe in this movie. The people that are being manipulated by the media, by politicians in this movie, aren't doing it because they're evil people. They're doing it in, in literally in one part because they are literally deprived of all the information. There's a moment when they literally just can't hear what's being said. And what's being said that's true is being shouted down by the media, literally by the media. Mm-hmm. And they respond to it as if it's true. They respond to what the lies that the media is telling as if it's true. With no doubts. Because that's the only voice they can hear. And it's just, 
it's disturbing. Have, it's yeah, no, it's it's disturbing because it's it still happens today. It's so, it's so common now. And oh, there. <laughs> I feel like we could spend a very long time talking about this movie. The stories of the average Joes in this movie. Uh, I love the soda jar starts telling you his story about, you know, old sourpuss that lives next door. Uh, my name's Bert Hansen, Mr. Doe. I'm the head soda jerker at Schwabacher's Drugstore. Well, sir, you see, me and my wife, we heard your broadcast, and we got quite a bang out of it, especially my wife. Kept me up half the night saying, that man's right, honey. The trouble with the world is nobody gives a hoot about his neighbor. That's why everybody in town sore and cranky at each other. And I kept saying, well, that's fine, but how's a guy going to go around loving the kind of neighbors we got? Old Sourpuss, for instance. <laughs> you see, Sourpuss Smithers is a guy who lives all alone next door to us. He's a cranky old man and runs a secondhand furniture store. We haven't spoken to him for years. I always figured he was an ornery old gent that hated the world because he was always slamming his garage door and playing the radio so loud he kept half the neighbors up. <laughs> Well, anyway, the next morning, I'm out watering the lawn, and I look over, and there's Sourpuss on the other side of the head, straightening out a dent in his fender. And uh, my wife yells to me out the window. She says, go on, speak to him, Bert. And I figured, well, heck, I can't lose anything, so I yelled over to him, good morning, Mr. Smithers. He went right on pounding his fender. Was I burned? So I turned around to give my wife a dirty look, and she said, louder, louder, he didn't hear you. So in a voice you could have heard in the next county, I yelled, good morning, Mr. Smithers. <laughs> <laughs> well, sir, you could have knocked me over with a feather. Old sourpuss turned around, surprised-like, and he put on a big smile, came over and took my hand like an old lodge brother, and he said, good morning, Hanson. I've been wanting to talk to you for years, only I thought you didn't like me. And then he started chatting away like a happy little kid, and he got so excited, his eyes all... Well, Mr. Doe, before we got through, I found out Smithers is a swell egg, only he's pretty deaf, and that accounts for all the noises. And he says it's a shame how little we know about our neighbors. And then he got an idea, and he said, how's about inviting everybody someplace where we can all get together and know each other a little better? Well, I'm feeling so good by this time, I'm ripe for anything, so Smithers goes around the neighborhood inviting everybody to a meeting at the schoolhouse, and I tell everybody that comes in the store, including Mr. Schwabecker, my boss. I'm talking too much. Oh. Well, I'll be doggone if for 40 people don't show up. Of course, none of us knew what to do, but we sure got a kick out of seeing how glad everybody was just to say hello to one another. You know, and that to me, Rewatching this movie after 20 years, not remembering the specific stories, just remembering, you know, the general story of the movie, but then re-listening to these stories of, you know, yeah, I said hi to the guy next door and he ignored me and I was, you know, I turned to give my wife a dirty look like, yeah, I told you so. And she said, he didn't hear you. Say it again. And he says it again and the neighbors just lights up. And it's remarkable to me because there's that nothing has changed there's not mm -hmm. a i think people to i love to the colonel's response is oh you can't tear down fences if you if you tore down your neighbor one picket off your neighbor's fence they'd slap a lawsuit on you that's just like attitudes today there's no difference at all but 
both sides are still true. Yes, we're still afraid of our neighbor. We're still afraid of taking that first step. We still fear the danger that we put ourselves in by that, but we also grossly misjudge the people around us because we're all just like that. We're all just like each other. And it's especially right now, I don't want to go on a preaching. I don't want to go on a preaching binge. (laughs) But right now when the focus is so much on pointing out differences, the focus Mm -hmm. is on be yourself. The focus is on stand out, be individual, be unique. We have lost, and I think in this time period too, we lost the ability just as humans to recognize the similarities between ourselves and other people. Mm -hmm. This movie, like it's, it's almost hard to talk about the themes in this movie because I feel like I am clumsy where this movie is so eloquent because it's so carefully crafted. It's so carefully expressed. And as much as I want to gush about the themes in this movie and tell people, you need to listen to this. You need to watch this. You should, you should do, I should be doing what's in this movie. This is such a powerful story. It is also something that just like in, he, just like uh, Willoughby says later in the movie, you know, he says, well, she says, well, these are all things everybody's heard before. Love thy neighbor, turn the other cheek, do as you would to others. And he says, yeah, well, maybe these, oh gosh, well, maybe just like me, they're only just really getting what that means. Mm-hmm. And it, and I think it's, you know, it, it never, it doesn't change because it's a new generation. It's new people. We hear the same things, but it doesn't, you can't make a person understand in their gut the meaning of an axiom. You can't make a person feel a, a moral, not amoral. <laughs> you can't make a person feel what a moral Oh, you means. can make them feel immoral. You yeah. can make them feel immoral, not immoral, a moral. <laughs> but, but, but this movie achieves that, where, where you or I, I don't think... Certainly not in the span of a 45-minute or hour-long podcast could. No, absolutely. And I, I'm not even going to try to. And I, I also think, you know, there'd be no way to really try to discuss the themes in this without talking a lot more about things that are going on yes. <laughs> now. And then suddenly finding, you know, uh, I, I don't want to start stepping uh or putting a foot on one side or another and et cetera, <laughs> well, et cetera. And I uh, love that. I love that about this movie. So much of this movie is pointing out, you know what? It, it, it doesn't matter. I, you know, they talk about forming a third government party, but the fact is the people that are on either side of the, whatever party they're in, they, they are the same. They, in this movie, Yes. The people that live next door to people that they think are completely different from them are just the same as the people next to them because they're human. And it's not moralizing. It's just learning to identify with somebody that's next door. Yeah, it's a pretty astonishing film. Um, and the, for the themes that it, that it discusses and for the, uh, just the, very, the very various ways that they tell that story... Mm-hmm. And several stories, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it is just, like you said, it's, it's a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. It is. It's, and it, it's interesting. I didn't realize this was the only movie put out by this studio. Yeah, I think Frank Capra actually produced films on his own a while later in his mm-hmm. career. 
but this was like one of his earliest ones and um apparently there was lots of lots of issues and a lot of trouble uh dealing with it and it it really didn't work out for him mm -hmm. so this particular company that he had with riskin this is the only film only commercial film that they produced together it's interesting it, it that seems having watched this movie it's like oh that's too bad but it's also kind of like well gosh what could they possibly follow this movie up with well i think this is a film that kind of had to be done sort of uh, if you want to call it sort of um, a 1941 version of independent i mean it needed to be not mgm or yes. not you know republic yes. pictures it needed to be you know risk and capra or capra risk and productions or whatever yeah. or no, frank capra productions <laughs> it had to be that independent uh, company because of the messages because i mean there are some there are some anti big shot themes yes you <laughs> can mgm in couldn't walk out and point a finger at db norton in this movie and be like you're you're an evil guy you know and 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 it's 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 yeah i explained that extremely poorly but you're exactly right <laughs> especially with the the bizarrely traditional yet also timely like edgy themes in it at the time some of these themes were very even now they're really hard for people to talk about and mm -hmm. if you put that out as a major studio that could really jeopardize your reputation. Oh, there would definitely be calls of hypocrisy uh, <laughs> yes. on the studio. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 One studio couldn't do this and say, yeah, well, we were talking about those guys, not us. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. There's just no way they could pull it off. Oh, it'd be the newspapers in this movie all over again. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> You're slinging mud at us. No, we weren't. <laughs> <laughs> We weren't slinging mud. No. <laughs> well, there there definitely are a lot of uh, familiar faces in this movie, and and it's funny. I think I'm I'm a little my my opinion is a little uh, probably off kill. I, I I can't think of the right word for it. I like this. I I I worry that I like this movie more than I should because it's something that I grew up with. Um, mm. not that I You're afraid the it. nostalgia is yeah. the nostalgia factors little high no, for you. Well, not that I watched it so many times when I was a kid, but when I saw it, uh, and realized that it's, it is an orphaned film. It is out of copyright. Um, first of all, I was shocked because any film that I think of as a great film from my childhood, I go, no, that's impossible. How could that be out of copyright? But, you know... It's probably actually the very reason you know it so well, because it was... <laughs> probably. It, being out of copyright since the 1960s, <laughs> it was one that was easily uh, gotten a hold of by studios and video distributors. Mm -hmm. AMC. <laughs> and and it, it gets put out anytime. Oh, we need to fill two hours? Hey, here's Meet John Doe. Yep. Yeah. But it is it is interesting. I... I Going into it was concerned that I would have my opinion would be tainted. That was the word I wanted mm -hmm. by my early experience with it. But watching it again now, and especially with us reviewing movies for the last 10 years and looking at them a bit more in depth and really, you know, considering how they were made and studying them and looking at the craft, this movie, it holds up. It, not only do the themes, the themes are freakishly applicable today, <laughs> but outside yeah. of that, they're, uh, 
the cinematography, the story, the storytelling is just um, supreme. It's just excellent storytelling. There's not, it's kind of got almost not a hair out of place. So I'm, I'm pleased coming back in it as a, a, as a mature adult that it holds up so well. But it's also a movie that I think, you know, we talk about, well, would I, would I recommend that my friends watch it? I would recommend everybody watch it. I can't mm-hmm. think of a person alive that I would say, yeah, you, you don't need to watch that movie. You probably wouldn't find it interesting or you probably wouldn't find anything to identify with in, in it. it. There's nobody that I could say that to. Everybody should watch this movie. I think what you said, it, it holds up. It, it does hold up. Like I said, you could almost, you could show this film today. You could, you could remake this film verbatim today. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that may be the fact that it's, you know, a newspaper, Mm-hmm. Which I mean, we still have newspapers, but they're not—they're not what they were. Yeah, it'd be obviously. a website and now. <laughs> you'd be, yeah, exactly. It'd be a website, or maybe you could do it as a uh, even, yeah, even I was gonna say even a news network. A news program. I don't even know what. Mm-hmm. Maybe I don't even know if that would hold up much anymore because it, everything's going so much to you know the streaming that mm-hmm. networks are almost a thing of the mm-hmm. are. are kind of looking like they're going to be the next newspaper. Mm-hmm. Everyone's going to be working from their home. They're not going to have studios. <laughs> <Yeah>. and, <laughs> well, but that said, I think it'd be easy to remake this movie and completely fail. I think it's oh, so wow. well yeah, done. Yeah, absolutely. It would just be so easy to try and remake this movie and modernize the themes. I think people would be uncomfortable. I think people would be uncomfortable with the themes. Make this film today and put out as a brand new film. I think people would find it uncomfortable. It's I think very- because... <laughs> I think it. I I think because this is you know 1941, it's mm-hmm. kind of protected it by is. being old. Yeah. That people can kind of push the themes aside, maybe a mm-hmm. little bit. Mm-hmm. But I think they would be they they would find it very uncomfortable yeah. to have this well, thrown in their face in bright, vivid color in 4K. <laughs> well, and frankly, I think watching it today, it makes me a little uncomfortable. It makes yeah. me question how I treat my neighbors. Not not in a oh, yeah, th- like a grand sense, but like it I think if you're watching it thoughtfully and mindfully, it is an uncomfortable thing to watch. And I love that there are moments where that discomfort comes across Willoughby, where mm-hmm. you see, you know what? Yeah, this is something that, that a lot of people feel uncomfortable about, even though we know it's right, even though we know it's true, or believe believe that it's right, believe that it's true. Or I like that they show that, yeah, truth is uncomfortable sometimes, especially ones that, that hit home. Especially the things with your neighbors. I know I sort of my all my neighbors, you know, it, but the, there are you don't you only have to go a few houses and it's like, um, I know his name's John. You know? <laughs> I don't remember his last name. Uh, I know um, the names of my immediate neighbors and beyond that. Right. And and I, frankly, I could do without at least one of my neighbors. Yeah. So but, but these are the but those are the people I still I see them almost every yeah. day. And when I'm walking the dog, they'll be and, out in their yard. And with, it's always, hey, how you doing? Wait, mm-hmm. hi, whatever. I don't know their names. Yeah. And they're only like four houses down. And we don't I, say, are you doing okay? Hey, you know, is, is everything going all right? Is there anything you need? Like that level of neighborliness, 
is right. a, I think unheard of these days, which is a tragedy. Uh, and right. you know, in this time, in this time period too, it was also becoming you know threatened. It was also mm-hmm. very threatened. So it's interesting that. I think you said early on that maybe we've cycled back around. I think everybody cycles around and around and around mm-hmm. constantly. Yes. You know, we try really hard and then we go, oh, okay, I tried for a while. Now I'm not going to. And then, and then we were, are reminded, oh, I should probably give it a try again. Maybe when the uh, the pandemic has passed us and we can actually interact with neighbors again. Um, <laughs> well, we, have- can, we can hope. We can hope that maybe in I'm I'm saying this for myself too. I yeah. don't know. It's kind of one of these things. I would love to make take that step. I don't know that I will. Yeah. Well, I have a and that's that's the uncomfortableness. Yeah. That's what's that's what's uncomfortable. I it is remarkable to me this this movie. I think it's easy to watch this movie and say, oh well, that's old fashioned. Nobody really believes in that anymore. But I have a friend that um, during lockdown started an online group to intentionally go around to elderly people in their neighborhood and ask them if they need anything. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, especially, and this is not, this isn't a PSA or anything like that. Don't get, you know, don't be put off, guys. We're not going to, you know, please donate now or anything like that. <laughs> but it, I was just amazed that she had, I mean, elderly people are extremely isolated to begin with. We, there are a lot of movies out there about Schmidt and, you know, there are tons of movies out there about how elderly people are marginalized marginalized, and, and you know, struggle to stay in society and, you know, feel valuable as they age. But it was just phenomenal to me that especially at, during lockdown at the time where people were the most afraid to talk to their neighbors, that there were people doing this, going out and intentionally caring for their neighbors. It's, it's, I'm getting a little emotional, <laughs> but I think, you know, it, I love two, two things. One, it's easy to dismiss this movie and say, you know, oh, but that's old fashioned, but it's also interesting to look at it. What goes on, you know, goes on around us that we're maybe not aware of that. It still is bringing this mentality back, this neighborliness back and mm-hmm. in trying so hard to, to make friends of, of the people around us that we otherwise wouldn't talk to. I suppose we should rate this movie. Yeah, I was going to say, I guess we should try to put it. I, I don't think, I think listening to both of us talk Do about it, I don't think, yeah, I don't know if there's really going to be a surprise about our ratings here. One Othel. <laughs> All that being said, I give it a three. Yeah, yeah. I think you kind of stank. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think this is absolutely a, a full five. It oh, is yeah. a film that everyone should watch. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Again, you could easily say these themes are important. People should be like this, you know, but it's more than that. It is also the performances in this movie and uh, the themes are good. But the dialogue is really exceptional. There's some, there's some performances. Gary Cooper does just a, a stellar job of being just a guy that's thrust into a situation and then grabs onto it. He just is phenomenal in it. So I, yeah, it's not, don't, don't mistake R5 Othel rating as, you know, oh, you need to be better people. You better watch this movie. It's not about that. (laughs) (laughs) It is genuinely merited. It merits this rating in, I think, every technical aspect as well as artistic. I think we've said all we had to, we can say. (laughs) I think so. Uh, We'll start repeating ourselves now. (laughs) Yeah. 
So before we do that, let's go ahead and just say goodbye. <laughs> let's thank everybody. Let's thank everyone for listening and tuning in. Again, if you have any feedback or anything, send it to any of the contact information that we gave at the front of the show. Uh, look forward to hearing from you. Uh, yes, I will update the links on the webpage, and I will have a link in our show notes so you'll be able to reach us in all the easy ways. So uh, thanks very much again. And uh, Lydia, thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you for – I mean, this was your idea that you brought this one to the table, and I really appreciate it. Yeah. This was a, a great I'm, watch. I'm glad, too. My eyes lit up when I saw it, and I thought, gosh, if this is as good as I remember it being, this is going to be a heck of a movie to watch, especially right now. So thanks yes. for taking me up on it. Uh, no, absolutely. I'm very happy to do so. So we'll talk to everybody next month. Be safe, everybody. And uh, yeah, say wave hi and say hi to the neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye.